You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good afternoon. My name's Jo Cannington. I'm the manager of affordable housing at the City of Melbourne. We'd really like to welcome you and thank you for spending your lunchtime with us on this fantastic opportunity to discuss a really important issue. Before we go any further, I'd like to acknowledge country. So on behalf of the City of Melbourne, I respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri and the Woiwurrung peoples and pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. We are committed to the reconciliation journey because at its heart, reconciliation is about strengthening relationships between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples for the benefit of all Victorians. And I don't want to just leave it there. I think as a topic of housing, when we're talking about building on country, about housing a whole range of different community needs, I also commit to including our First Nations people in this conversation in a meaningful way. So today, the format of this session is we've got about 45 minutes for a conversation that probably needs days, but we're gonna start it today and have a very much a focused conversation on solutions. We'll have a bit of a brief introduction of everybody's piece of the pie and their patch that they're looking at. Um, I will give a brief overview of each of the speakers and then we'd really like to offer an opportunity for you as people within the crowd and audience today to actually ask a question as well. So we'll have about 20 minutes to have hopefully a a very rigorous uh, discussion. We have um, just an opportunity as well to have a coffee or a cup of tea or a little piece of cake or something. The City of Melbourne is going to cover that as part of the sponsorship. So if after this event you feel like a quick cuppa, please feel free to grab that and, um, and stay around. I'd like to introduce Glenn, who will be recording the session today with um, a beautiful drawing of recording the key issues and what was discussed. If you'd like a copy of that drawing, we've got a registration at the back and we can email that to you and you can either use it for your own purposes or if you wanted to just sort of see and reflect on what the key issues that were discussed, that's another opportunity. Okay, I think I've covered all the ins and outs. So today, women over the age of 55 are the fastest growing cohort of potential homelessness in Australia. And it's a huge issue. Research estimates that over 400,000 women are at risk of that homelessness. And that many of these people have actually led productive lives and never actually been have experienced homeless before then. So we've got an issue, but today we've got a whole range of brains to actually think about different solutions. The reasons for this are very complex, but as older women have experienced a whole range of disadvantages throughout their lives, increasing household and housing prices, 
the range of different working environments they've worked in, gender pay inequalities, you know, the list goes on. And as women are getting older, they're also sort of starting to think, what is my housing option? And how do I think about potentially something that's different to what other generations of women have looked at? Nursing homes, retirement villages, expensive private rentals or traditional owner mortgage arrangements are sometimes not meeting either the financial or social needs of women. The Victorian government has committed to a $5.3 billion investment in new housing. And I think we're seeing a whole range of policy shifts in this space. But today we wanted to talk about solutions, how we together today can learn about what's happening, what are the alternatives, why are they needed, how did they get funded and how did they happen. So we'll do that with this brilliant panellist. We've got Jen Coulis. Jen's works at a not-for-profit organisation called Nightingale Housing and has most recently de delivered a project in Ballarat. She's also um, about to undertake a Churchill Fellow where she'll actually look at the, the role of um, women, older women and innovative housing solutions. Anika Deutsch, we've got here a fantastic opportunity to learn from a local um, opportunity that's being explored explored in Dalesford through Wink, so there's a little brochure on your chairs. And it's, I think, about how different models can be looked at and how a grassroots approach can actually be a really wonderful way of looking at different ways, sustainability, principles of social connection, and how this particular project is, is moving through in, in Dalesford. Natasha Liddell is a planner working at the Women's Property initiatives, I was going to say industry then. Um, Natasha is a planner um, by background and is working currently in the development planning sector um, and her role at the moment is development manager looking at a whole range of different projects including an example at the moment that's happening in Cardinia for older women. Karen, Karen's an interesting mix to this conversation today in terms of her experience working at the ANZ Bank. The bank and the role of financial funding and how we actually look at how projects can happen is a really important part of this conversation. The ANZ Bank has a housing policy and Karen's very much involved in head of housing, how to implement that policy, how to actually think differently about the availability and the appropriateness of different funding models. So we're interested in hearing about that. So I'll hand over now. Um, this is the chance for the panellists to actually have a chance to just get their key issues out there before we break into a, a conversation. So who would like to go first? Great. Thanks, Natasha. <laughs> Test the microphone. All good. Um, so my name's Natasha Liddell. I'm the Development Manager at Women's Property Initiatives. Most of our housing is provided, uh, is community housing, which means it's, we provide long-term affordable housing for women-headed households. And those women are typically from the Victorian Housing Register, almost exclusively. Now, to be eligible for the Victorian Housing Register, you need to have assets of less than um, $30,000 and a very low or low income. So what we've become very interested in is how we help um, women who aren't, don't fit into that category but are at risk of ageing into poverty. So we've just delivered our um, first older women's housing pilot project in Beaconsfield in Cardinia Council, which provides four architecturally designed homes which are 
adaptable, so they've been designed to a gold livable standard, so you could be able to move mobility aids and things around in there. And they've also got an adaptable living area that can be sort of two bedrooms or a larger living area and adaptable outdoor spaces. Um, they've been designed to maximise light and airflow and to keep running costs low by including solar panels and water tanks and things like that. So that those four homes will provide long-term secure and affordable accommodation for women over 55 who have some assets, so they're between $150,000 and $300,000 and are on a low income. So these, women's aren't, these women aren't eligible for community housing, um, nor can they access a mortgage due to their age and their working life and the limit, limitations on their assets. They find themselves stuck in the private rental market where the homes are often inappropriate as they age. They're not adaptable to their mobility aids and things like that, and where the tenure ship is insecure and they can be moved on by a landlord, um, and where their assets get reduced over time due to the um, high prices in the private rental market. And we've, we found that these women, as, as we know, and this conversation is about this week, are often ageing into poverty. So while at 55 they might have a, an asset base that's come from super, superannuation or a previous home sale that's being expended over time. So the financial structure for our pilot project is that the rev residents invest or they loan us $150,000 as means to help fund the construction of the project. Um, they pay an ongoing affordable rent, so that's capped at 30% of their income or 75% of the market rate, whichever is um, the higher. Sorry, whichever is the lower. <laughs> and they can stay as long as they like. And at the end of their tenure, that $150,000 will be returned to them or their estate with a small interest rate, so it's RBA plus 0.25 basis points. Uh, it, we've recently been going through the process of finding residents and tenanting those homes. And what's that's really demonstrated to me is the real need for housing solutions for you know this this cohort. And there's definitely been interest from women who are interested in this in that product, I suppose, and in different locations and wanting to have a bit more control over where they live. Um, the challenge of always, as always, is financial. Um, that project was made possible by very generous philanthropic. Um, contributions, including from the Lord Mayor's Charitable Fund, who overall paid for more than half of the project. And the idea is that we can use this as a test case to demonstrate to government the need to support this cohort of women before their asset base is completely lost um, and they age into homelessness. So while the pilot project will provide long-term, secure and affordable accommodation for those four women, um, we would love, obviously, to see more opportunities for women in this cohort to prevent them from being in a situation where they are eligible for the Victorian Housing Register and needing to join a group of 100,000 other uh, households. So that's, that's WPI and that's what we do. Um, sure, I'll go next. Um, so probably just a bit of context as to why a banker would be sitting here. Um, the practical reality is I've come from 20 years in the housing space. So um, before this, I was at the New South Wales government um, and my team drafted and delivered the homelessness agenda and strategy for the New South Wales government. So looked really closely at this space. And the big leap into the banking sector for me was around identifying that there was a significant gap in the financial markets understanding of this, right? A real disconnect in terms of what were the social issues 
issues around it, um, how could we address different parts of what was happening in the social affordable housing space, and where, if I was on the other side, that I might be able to start to influence an education around what we were seeing sort of in the housing space beyond sort of, you know, sort of build and leave, right, to this typical development. So um, over the last, um, just last three and a half years at ANZ, um, we have, we went from really having done no, no projects in this space um, to establishing a $1 billion target to help fund and facilitate social, affordable, accessible housing. So to really to look at things that would start to change the marketplace. So how could we develop things like security of tenure? How could we support better rental and better purchasing outcomes and the typology of the housing that was being delivered? So where could we support the, our clients to do better and to think differently than where they were? Um, as we sort of enter into year four, we've delivered over $4 billion into that space, right? Taking it quite seriously across both Australia and New Zealand with a real drive to have conversations with, with our customers and our clients and the industry at a, at a broader whole to understand what we could do. So I guess a couple of things that we've looked at that have been really important to us is around this focus around security of tenure, right? So how can we look at the things that are coming into the market and the future of what's moving into the market and influence it for the better? Right, so things like if apartment buildings are going up, how can we actually work with a specialist disability accommodation space to actually get SDA into each of those apartment buildings? How can we actually make sure that those things that are being built already, that are linked to public transport, that are well located to services, can actually deliver outcomes in terms of who is guaranteed as a set of clients within them? And so for us, that's kind of been like our starting point. And so one of the major customers that we worked through over the last couple of years has been Assemble, which is a local client here in Kensington, where their first project is due to be delivered in the next few months, and that's a build-to-rent-to-own product. And what we really liked about that idea was that it moved away from some of those challenges of um, rent to buy and all the consumer risks there and actually focused on building a good sustainable building, developing a community around it and with services and a developer that stayed on site so you knew that the quality was there and those issues that we've seen weren't happening. But more importantly, it gave people a pathway, a five-year security of tenure, something that we absolutely lack in Australia is actually having that certainty about being able to stay in place with wraparound financial well-being support so that they actually had the ability to learn how to save for a deposit to be supported through um, a savings plan so that if they chose at the end that they could purchase that property. And the exciting part about that is that they could purchase that property at the price it was worth when they started building. So not chasing the market. So really trying to target a couple of significant issues that we see in the housing space that we were trying to work past. And I guess when we look at this broader space and we look at sort of the, you know, systemic issues that have led to this real disadvantage for women, trying to understand how we can influence things that are coming to market. So things like build to rent and the opportunities that afford us now that as that's coming to market and we're trying to deliver a different type of rental product, what are the opportunities to actually secure the elements that we've done for things like specialist disability accommodation for cohorts such as, you know, sort of women over 55 at risk. So really trying to work through how we do that, how we embed it in, but also as, as importantly, what are the advocacy, policy, government changes that are required in order to actually make that affordable and sustainable? So from my point of view, um, I really think looking ahead matters in terms of trying to influence what we bring to market, what housing is available, and whether or not it actually meets the needs of the people that require it now and to the future. I'm Annika from Wink. Older Women in Co-Housing. 
Um, we're 29 very capable, well-organised um, women. We're mostly lesbian, but probably about 20% of us are, are not. Um, so we welcome all women over 50. Um, we're creating accessible, sustainable um, co-housing community. Um, it's going to be in Central Dalesford. Um, we're quite a cohesive group, um, but we do have a range of financial assets and also a lot of different skills. Um, so we're committed to housing women with a range of assets. We intend to have at least four social housing um, dwellings owned by a community housing provider. Um, and also probably about half our dwellings will for women who can buy them outright and also help fund the project. And then there'll be the group in the middle that Natasha described very eloquently, the group who have more than 35,000 um, but not enough to buy outright. They can't get a loan because of their low incomes and because of their age. Even if they're on high incomes, if you're over, if you're 65 or so, the banks don't really want to know because they want to know how you're going to pay it off. Um, so we're, we're aiming at designing 25 to 30 homes plus a shared common house, laundry, workshop, she shed. Um, guest rooms, so you don't have to replicate a guest room in every house. We're looking at small, efficient, passive house type of dwellings. We think co-housing provides or can provide a perfect mix between social and public space, but then the private space for you to withdraw to um, when you need that. So it's not like we're going to share kitchens except for what's in the common house. Um, and we're also pretty committed, committed to ageing in place, so accessible throughout in terms of universal accessibility and flexible design. We're currently negotiating on land um, and we do, after existing for about four and a half years, we do have a fair bit of trust amongst the group, um, enough so that we're, some, those of us with assets are prepared to put that in to purchase the land if we can't find a community housing provider who will do that for us. Um, and, and if necessary, um, go through to get to um, planning application stage. Our biggest issues are getting land because that means competing with developers um, who are more agile and have deeper pockets than us. Um, construction finance is another hurdle. Um, as I mentioned, banks aren't inclined to lend to older people. And if they do, they want personal guarantees, which means risking our assets that we've assembled over a lifetime. Another issue, I think, is that middle women are seen, that, that middle group that Natasha mentioned, I, um, are seen as undeserving compared to social housing eligible women. And that's understandable because they're not immediately at risk of homelessness and there's such a, a need for people who are. However, if we want to stop this trajectory, they are the homeless of the future. They'll run their assets down by paying rent that's unaffordable on the pension. And then they'll be on the housing waiting list. Um, the solutions, we see co-housing as a pretty good model for creating a mutually supportive environment, a village-like community where everyone can thrive um, rather than concentrations of social housing, which is the temptation when there's limited money, build as many social housing units as you can and you end up sort of creating this concentration to disadvantage. We think it's pretty replicable in terms of any tribe or group who want to do this. Um, and it's certainly very attractive to older women. Um, 
Miff and Jordan's per capita study found that, I don't know, something like 93, 95% of the older women she interviewed were really attracted to this sort of um, model because it provides safety and security and um, support social opportunities. Um, so we need um, incentives for landowners to sell to co-housing groups like ours. Um, and we also, as I mentioned, we need a community housing provider or some sort of development finance. Um, we won't have problem ameliorating the risk of pre-sales because I think we'll have a very big waiting list. We've already got 15 committed buyers. We are looking for more, so please join us if you'd like to. I'm just counting down the days till I can bring my membership form. I've only got 15 years to go, join Wink. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners, the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and the Boonwurrung um, people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Um, I acknowledge that these lands were never ceded and I am an uninvited guest here. Um, my name's Jen Coolis. I'm a development manager at Nightingale Housing. Nightingale are a not-for-profit housing provider. Um, this is usually when my you know, conversational partner rolls their eyes. What does a not-for-profit housing provider look like? I think that says a lot about the success of profit-driven housing um, delivery in this country. It's been incredibly successful over the last 50 to 70 years particularly. What Nightingale does, or it sits really between something like WPI as a registered community housing provider that's eligible for funding at state and federal levels to deliver subsidised housing. We do not. Um, however, 20% of Nightingale apartments in any project are sold to a community housing provider and then um, managed as either social housing or specialist disability accommodation. But that subsidy is kind of um, not directly afforded to Nightingale, but through a registered CHP. Uh, Nightingale delivers housing at cost. So effectively, I'm paid as a project manager. We pay our architect, we pay our, obviously for the land and, and for construction, but there's not a profit margin that you know might range from anywhere between kind of 10 and 30% in a standard market-driven project. So it's a pretty in and out kind of um, cost analysis, if you will. Um, the, the price of the apartments is what it costs us to deliver. Where we're finding that we're speaking to an older women cohort is kind of surprising, actually. Um, Nightingale delivers what's called tile houses or studio apartments. They range in size from about 28 to 30 square metres. The name tile house is an invention by Jeremy McLeod, the managing director of Nightingale, um, and it basically he's adapted it from the German meaning part of house. So they're, they're efficient, space-efficient studios, um, but then outside of your dwelling there's a range of shared amenity from shared laundry, shared rooftop garden space, productive garden beds, um, bike storage, storage cages. So it's kind of a range of amenity that exists outside of your lot boundary, if you will. Originally, these homes were envisaged for first home buyers as a foothold into, you know, an increasingly unaffordable housing space. But as they've been released out into the world, we're actually finding that increasingly women over 55 are coming to Nightingale and saying, I can afford to buy a home for two hundred eighty dollars or $300,000 and I want to live in Brunswick, um, but I can't get a loan so I can use my super or my personal assets to buy these apartments. Um, in recognition of this, um, Nightingale has created a priority ballot category for women over 55. Um, traditionally speaking, demand has outstripped supply of Nightingale homes, so we run a ballot to sell them. And priority ballots means that you get a priority kind of access or, or first go at, at, at being um, 
uh, kind of successfully being selected for the home that you wish within the building. There are some challenges with the tile houses. They're more expensive to build, quite frankly. So in a three-bedroom home where a lot of the area might just be flooring and ceiling, you've actually got a concentration of bathrooms and bedroom, uh, sorry, bathrooms and kitchens that are expensive to actually deliver. And it also means you have to think quite cleverly about how you use a small space. There's more joinery, that's very expensive, so cupboard space. And things like having to integrate your fridge because it's quite close to where you sleep. So how do you acoustically deal with the sound of a fridge at, you know, at night? All of this increases the cost of delivering those homes. The challenge we have there is um, we can only deliver a certain percentage of those tile house apartments in an overall building mix. And that's probably sub 10%. They're consistently the most um, balloted for or the most in demand and they're the first to sell in any one of our projects. So we are trying to change how we design those to address an older cohort. Um, for example, we just com um, completed the design, it's, it's soon to be under construction, a project in Preston. There were some great tile houses on the ground floor um, but they had lofted bed spaces so you needed to climb a ladder to get in. I mean it's, it's pretty obvious why that might not be useful if you've got limited mobility or you're ageing in place. You also had to go through your front door um, back into the building to use the laundry on the rooftop. Now, from a selling point, that's fantastic. You've got your own front door. But potentially, if you're an older woman living alone, you don't want to have to go out your front door and then back into the building at night to use the laundry space. So we're kind of trying to balance um, addressing two points of need in the housing spectrum, whether that's first home buyers or, or women looking for that second chance, potentially, at home ownership. Um, Nightingale can't address that problem alone, but I think we do sit in the spectrum of some of the housing providers that are here today. Um, it's something we're constantly talking about in our office. I don't think there's a panacea, but it's certainly front of mind for us. And um, personally speaking, it's the first thing I mention whenever we get a new project in the office. So um, I think that's us. So the idea was to have a bit of a taste of, of who the panellists are stimulate some ideas and questions for you within the, within the audience. And we have a roving mic. So would anyone like to start with a question to the panel? Well, I'll give you a minute to think because time's very precious, don't forget. Um, I think my question is really, what is the biggest opportunity, do you think, to change this trajectory? If you had a, a, an opportunity to wave a magic wand, we know that there's funding issues, we know there's systemic kind of regulation issues, but if there was one quick win that you think was almost achievable, has anybody got an answer? <laughs> okay, you can, have, you can have up to three. I've got two. Um, yeah. You've got two. Okay, Jen, let's hear it from you. Oh, it's just tax settings. I mean, capital gains, tax exemptions, um, negative gearing. I think if you wanted to wave a magic wand, that would be an absolute game changer in, um, in the housing space almost overnight. Um, for me, um, I think a review of um, Commonwealth rental assistance is, is vital, right? We haven't looked at that for, you know, several decades. And the practical reality is, is look what's happened to both, um, you know, housing prices and rental prices. Um, and so that 
change in the subsidy substantially changes people's ability um, to be able to secure tenure over a longer period of time. And I think that's extremely important. I guess if I had two others, one, I think it's being able for governments to consider upfront differentiating their tax settings um, and their planning settings in order to get outcomes, right? So often what happens is they push a blunt force, right? They'll say, we're going to remove land tax on a particular class, say, for example, build to rent. But what they don't say is maybe what we should do is we should remove 75% of that and an extra 25% in order to get an affordable outcome or in order to get these particular cohorts housed or in, in exchange for a certain percentage happening in every one of your developments. So really, like, you're not just giving away your policy levers, you're actually influencing change from the start in terms of what people are thinking for in terms of delivery. Um, and I think, you know, sort of that third one is that I think, you know, I would love, I think ongoing, the lucky part I have in this job is that I often get to bring not-for-profits and for-profits together um, in a better understanding. And I think I'd love, you know, to just really see where that becomes more of the norm, where there's a clear understanding of what the need and demand is, but also like where that... Um, where that feasibility comes together. Because often where these things fall down is that absence of feasibility, much to what was spoken to earlier, which is how do you get development finance? How do you get there? But often what we see in partnerships um, you know, between CHPs and private developers is a much better outcome than either could have delivered on their own. Um, I'd like to see a big fund, like super funds investing in this middle women category. They're investing in property. They've got nice, secure investment. Um, a middle a middle woman might own forty percent of the house. The the um, middle women fund, which could be not just for us, but a large fund that our super funds could invest in, or individual investors could invest in, and they could directly own property. Get no yield until it's sold, but I think there's room to look at that. Oh, I wish there was a magic wand. <laughs> um, I think there are so many levers that could be, um, that need to be moved, um, including including the negative gearing, just as one of many. From our perspective, I think there's a lot more work that can be done for older women in the shared equity space. Um, and, the, and Commonwealth Rental Assistance comes into that, funnily enough, because you need, um, if, you're in a, if you're renting, obviously you can access that, but if you're looking to purchase something, if it's your home that you're working towards owning, you don't have the ability to access Commonwealth rental assistance. So that is that is something that should be reviewed, both those, like the government shared equity scheme, so it targets old, older women and the Commonwealth rental assistance um, provisions. And would you see a national, because obviously um, you've got uh, shared equity in WA, a little bit in South Australia, and Victoria's just recently committed the 500 million. Would you see either a cut of that um, being directed the way they um, have direction for, say, Indigenous communities in WA, like having that separate lever or possibly sort of a national shared equity scheme, like some of those... That know, sounds like a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Is this on? Yeah. Um, question for, is it Karen from ANZ? Um, has ANZ sort of looked at um, debt solutions only or sort of, we touched on equity? We've sort of been working on a number of projects in this space and it does seem that the challenge is um, not so much debt, but it is an equity uh, issue because it's, it's equity that's going to drive these innovative models, um, but obviously finding equity to sort of back um, innovation 
is difficult. So I think part of the solution is is some sort of equity uh, investment into these um, emerging models to kind of get some traction and get some some projects off the ground. So is it something that ANZ looked at? Yeah, so absolutely. So ANZ traditionally does debt finance as, as banks do, um, but on the equity side, what we've done is brought together players on on various projects, right? So especially when trying to um, build up a pipeline. So we've, you know, tapped into super funds um, in order to, you know, help deliver um, key worker housing, you know, when they're sort of branching into that. We've, um, we've had, you know, private wealth clients come together. We've also had equity, you know, sort of providers come together where they've backed in programs, and I think we've We've seen the success of sort of being able to crowd in finance, right? The practical reality is we kind of, we, we do think of finance as sort of the bank and the, there's actually a wide range of places where money comes from. And often what happens is that, you know, ANZ comes in place on some of these projects um, and we help bring, we help crowd in that finance, right? So it is around understanding the different players that are investing in what returns they expect and how we can de-risk the project. Because quite frankly, what we've seen is sometimes the best thing we can do is de-risk the project so that equity players are willing to come into the space, which is certainly what we saw with Assemble was ANZ's ability to de-risk that pipeline. And now, you know, we're sort of going further in terms of what we're looking at in terms of blended social and affordable housing models. Can I just jump in there just to round out that discussion? Um, I'm sorry if this, if what the dif differentiation between equity and debt is known by many people in the audience, but I didn't know before I worked in this space. I have a background in architecture. Effectively, the equity is the first money that comes into the project, so it's the most at-risk money, and it's often the last to come out when the when the revenue or the sale of the homes comes back into the project. So, in recognition of that risk, it's the highest interest rate, and you're paying that from day one, basically, of usually of the project. Um, I guess um, I just know that for Nightingale, increasingly it's institutional players that might be superannuation funds or Social Ventures Australia, Hester Superannuation invested in our Ballarat project. But there is actually small a small cohort of individuals that have invested, you know, say $100,000 each and there's a return on that investment. But that's the seed equity that actually gets the project happening. That's the seedling that starts the whole thing. So it's interesting that... Um, I think, you know, Nightingale's expanding rapidly, but it still comes down to key people who, like, individual households who are financially, you know, well off to invest in a project and actually say, we back you and, you know, here, take my $100,000 and I'll have an interest on that over a three-year period. So, um, I guess just acknowledging that, you know, in theory, if anyone out there has some spare change and they're interested in, you know, in putting that towards a social cause and getting a return, it still comes down to individuals. <laughs> There'll be Let's a ballot at the end. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm going to ask a question probably to Karen as well. Although I will just mention we do actually have, a, the, the Homesvic does have an Aboriginal focus for shared equity. They actually have priority. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, middle women is a great example where women may actually have quite a high LVR and they're unable to access a mortgage. And we often talk about it as serviceability, which I don't, think is the correct word because they can service the loan. It's about whether they can pay that loan off by 65. And I appreciate there are regulations within yeah. the banking industry that require that. Can you see any way where we can change those regulations or is the drive the regulation or is it the bank? Because I'm sure that there are many women that could work past 65 
and that's kind of not factored into that. No, it's not. And you're absolutely right. Like, so we sit under our APRA regulation, right? And, and it's not a shield. Like, it's, it's practical reality, right? Like, we, um, you know, sort of, we're, we're one of the highest regulated indus um, industries you can have, which means that, you know, we kind of will often stand in place and try to figure out how do we get to the other side on something. I, I mean, I... Uh, I always, I mean, part of the reason we went to tackle sort of the housing side was because we could actually see how we could get changed sooner and how we could prove things up that would scale um, as opposed to sort of having the fist fight over, you know, sort of mortgage products, especially, you know, coming out of the last um, couple of years. Um, but the reality here is I think you really have to think about I think we often try to go for a mortgage product, right? A 30 years set in stone looks like that. And what we're trying to do is solve for security of tenure. And whether or not that is a that is a product because of the variation of the LVR that really needs to be a five or 10 year product and sort of change sort of that cycle of what you look at or whether or not it needs to be sort of understanding that actually the systemic things that are broken that don't give us a security of tenure is the better way of going about that. Because I think the thing I worry about the most is that you draw down whatever that's there and that you can't you can't eat a house there's no money left to pay and like the biggest problems we hear from people are they can't live on the pension alone and so there's this real challenge of sort of what are we trying to solve for when there's so many cards unstacked in the deck right like the women are just not in the best position um, because of some of these systemic issues that I know were talked about at you know sort of the program the other day but it's this real challenge so I guess for me we went to we went to property first because it was a way we could cut in um, and probably had a less difficult line to regulation. Do I think there's potential there? Absolutely. Do I think it's a, a longer pathway? Yes. Like we have similar problems, not just with shared equity, but also the treatment of social housing, the treatment of affordable housing, the level of risk the regulation puts on those areas and therefore the cost of capital to us that we're constantly trying to work around in order to get the best deal. So just following up, is it the regulator or, yeah. or is it could the banks advocate for new oh, and Oh, yeah, well, absolutely. Products. Like, so we so we regularly will have these conversations and, and put them forward. So it is always, it always starts with the regulator and it's always the bank. So a perfect example would be recently there was a review that APRA did of deposit holding institutions. And we made, you know, a case along with the community housing sector to say that you need to, your understanding of the community housing sector has them at the same level of risk as commercial property. They're actually counter-cyclical. They get more money in a downturn during, you know, what we just saw during COVID. They actually have a higher, you know, sort of, um, they have a higher level of people that stay in place. They actually have people that pay their mortgages and have that, well, pay their rents and have the ability to stay in place. And yet they were being put in a different position. So I think the bank has a role as, you know, sort of being able to call these things out and also has a responsibility, you know, to do so, um, but certainly to also then follow the regulation that's put onto us. So I would say much like anything else, it's a, it's a constant dialogue um, until we do that. And it's absolutely like why we've been involved in, you know, sort of providing advice to several state governments around sort of, you know, how how to look at shared equity and, you know, sort of what the best opportunities are going forward. Because having those governments go first actually makes a huge difference in terms of an evidence base where governments actually backing that, backing that in and showing that it can deliver actually opens up opportunities to be able to argue for the rest of the market, private market to do it as well. Um, can I just add to that in terms of the shared equity. I know some banks are actually doing shared equity themselves in blue ribbon property. Mm. Um, so that's another option to consider, I think. 
um, because I think loans for women might suit some, as you're saying, who can keep on working, but for many, they can't service a loan. So shared equity really needs to be the answer. The Victorian um, home buyers scheme is really designed for people who can have a life ahead of them to work. It's limited to 25% for people who aren't Aboriginal. Um, and it requires you to get a bank loan. Um, but yet it prevents you from substituting or supplementing it with any other finance. So everyone on the title has to be eligible. So you can't get someone else to share the equity. So basically these older women can't access that. If it was set at 50%, they could. Or if there was um, flexibility in terms of who else could be on title, who else could share that equity, then they could. Typically, they can have 40 or 50% ownership. They get 25% from the government. What about that missing 25%? Where does that come from? They can't borrow it. And also, it requires them to buy up, to buy an existing dwelling at the moment. And whereas our project and many others like Nightingale are off the plan, you can't access that funding for those off the plan developments. Probably got time for one more question. There's someone that likes. Thanks. Thanks. Um, my question is for Jen. Um, I'm not sure where you're at with your Churchill Fellowship, but are there any places in the world that are sort of leading the way or changing or doing it well? I was having a chat with Anita before, and he is from Austria. I'm starting in Vienna, um, and, and I'll be going to Switzerland, the Netherlands, France, and, and the UK. Um, I think, to be honest, in general, I mean, a lot of the places, Vienna or, or Austria more generally is probably a sound starting point. It has a fantastic history of, of affordable housing. So the, there are tax settings that disincentivize using housing as an asset class. So... Um, in Australia, housing is the single greatest asset class. It's almost nine times as big as the next um, asset class, which is the share trading or share market. Um, and you can imagine if we made it less desirable, people might invest their funds in government bonds or the share market or, you know, starting a small business. So that's a really interesting place to start, but also a history and expectation that a government provides housing for its people. And I think in Australia, we've seen that corroded really consistently since the kind of 1950s after post World War II. Um, the other complexity here in Australia is that we've got a very kind of murky division in some senses between what state responsibility and what's federal. And it, it means you get this great game where they kick the ball back and forward from each other and say, oh, it's their fault. It's their fault. You should do things. But what's well, kind of interesting about that is that certain states go about it really differently. Here in Victoria, we've got the lowest rates of um, subsidised housing in the country. Um, perhaps it's no um, surprise that we also have a really um, expensive housing market, along with, say, Sydney. Um, but South, South Australia, I was saying to Mary Faith before, has a fantastic history of um, subsidised housing. After, the World War, after World War II, they had really world-leading policies about buying or renting subsidised housing, affordable housing. So, um, sorry, all of that to say that the countries I'm visiting have a strong history of believing in subsidised housing and kind of um, puncturing the housing bubble, which we're really keen to start pump up here in Australia. We're basically kind of fed this message that if you're if you own property, you're gonna have a secure retirement. And if you don't, you won't. And and that is kind of your responsibility to make sure that happens. So I'm really interested in the kind of cultural background of those places. Some of them have a similar setting. I'd say the UK is quite close, um, but others in Central Europe have more of a kind of holistic or like society-based model that see housing as a social infrastructure. And and 
therefore try to make sure that there's a diversity of housing models um, in their cities. Um, yeah, I think that's, sorry, that was a bit of a rambling message, but... Um, no, fantastic, thank you. Um, unfortunately, that's the 45 minutes. I did say it was going to go quickly. Um, what I'd like to do is just give the panellists one last opportunity to kind of make a statement, I guess. I think there's a whole range of work that the City of Melbourne feels very committed to moving this conversation forward. This has been a partnership between community services and the housing team because we want to empower women about choices, about understanding what their options are, so this won't be the end of the conversation for us. But let's go back to the panellists. What's your last statement you'd like us to kind of take away from this discussion today? Uh, I'd really like us to continue to advocate for investment in this space and just noting that while women have got the capacity to invest in their own housing, that's the best time for government um, to invest in them as well and to get you know, the best returns rather than paying for them later. Um, look, for me, I think it's looking ahead to what's happening in the property market, what we're seeing coming into play, and actually being willing to think about how we influence early, right? If we don't want to see another generation that's facing what we're seeing now, then this is the time to really think about how we mould and change the types of housing that come to the market and the market in which we operate. Um, I want to see shared equity happen um, from the banks, from government, and from individual investors being having options that they can in, invest in. Mine's twofold. Sorry, give me a microphone. I'll never let it go. Um, firstly, um, I have to kind of echo Karen's statement. I think, um, you know, housing providers um, like us, we're here to meet you where you are. So if, um, if anyone's thinking about their housing... Um, situation or it's it's unstable or it's insecure um, and often that's interwoven with complex life events it might be difficult to think about making a plan for yourself or what options might be available for you but um, you know potentially it's about um, asking a friend that you trust to help you and to set a plan in place or to start thinking about what housing situation situations or opportunities exist for you. Nightingale Information Nights are free or calling up WPI to talk about getting on the social housing register. We recognise that there's stigma or fear or a lot of complexity around some of these ideas, but, um, you know, the best time to plant a tree is yesterday. The second best time is today. So the more time, the, the better opportunity, I think. And secondly, you know, we're weeks, um, if not months, away from a federal election. I mean... I don't mean to sound too much like a communist, but we should be talking with our friends and family. What are our expectations? They're trying to silence me. Um, no, no, I'm kidding. Um, what are our expectations of government? You know, is it reasonable that we should be asking for this? And, you know, what does a women's budget look like, for example? Does it involve housing or, or um, fiscal policy that specifically recognises that women are structurally disadvantaged from the beginning of their working life to the very end and beyond? So um, let's, you know, let's chat about it with our friends. Let's make some noise. I guess that's my other ask. Oh, thank you so much. So let's put a round of applause together for our panellists. I think um, it's been fabulous to hear the different lenses and thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Please hang around and have a coffee, cup of tea. Sure. And I hand over to Tanya. Sorry. Hi. Um, I've helped organise uh, this series of talks. We've got two more talks on. Um, one tomorrow night and one on Friday. You can find them on the M Pavilion program. Thank you, everybody, for speaking today. It was wonderful. Um, and also, uh, the first talk that we had on Sunday, um, there's a link in that 
uh, talk to the Housing for the Aged Action Group. They had a f they have a federal election policy platform, and you can hop on there, and you can tell your politicians what you think. So um, that would be awesome if everybody would do that. Thank you. Just on that, if you'd like to register your interest, what we'll be doing after this is linking a whole range of things that were discussed at this session and we can follow up with a email to you and a copy of the illustration that reflects the discussion. Thank you very much. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.